Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we'll speak with Robert Alvarez about nominations and witch hunts at the Department of Energy. But first, we continue our conversation with Vincent Emmanuel, veteran and anti-war activist. He was just talking about oil companies. I've either been fighting for or fighting against oil companies, I feel like, since I was 18 years old, David. So yeah. <laughs> I oh, it's, it's a very... It's, it's sort of sick to say that out loud, but that was, you know, as I'm sure you know, spending time around activists in general, but also veterans and so on. I mean, there's sort of a dark sense of humor you have to have to, to, to sometimes deal with these things. And uh, that was the sense I got from a lot of the veterans. I mean, in a more serious way, they understood they were sent to fight and potentially die and be forever altered physically, emotionally, mentally yeah. uh, for, for oil you know, corporations and geopolitical interests. That was very clear. They, they they very clearly understood their place in this this battle now against the the oil companies. And I, I hope you're right. I mean, I here where I'm at in Northwest Indiana, this sort of Rust Belt deindustrialized area. That, I mean, we deal a lot with unions. So not only do we want the unions to step up and take on U.S. Empire and so on and deal with the contradictions of their own, you know, relationships within that, that framework. But also, you know, we're looking for them to combat the very industries that they see as providing jobs. So we have the, the British Petroleum uh, Tar Sands Refinery here in East Chicago, Hammond, Indiana. And it's, uh, as some workers have described it, a ticking time bomb. And that's just, in, in that regard, I mean, we just on a daily basis, the kind of pollution and the kind of industry and the, the, uh, environmental racism that plays such a huge role in putting that plant in a largely black and brown area. Um, these these are issues we're dealing with, obviously internationally uh, and nationally, but even locally. You know, no less than twenty miles from where I'm talking to you right now. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Vincent Emmanuel. He's been to North Dakota and is an activist based in Indiana. You know, we now have a climate related to you know climate issues where the president-elect, so-called, is proposing uh, for Secretary of State, the CEO of Exxon, uh, which is uh, being investigated by attorneys general in multiple states for lying to the public for 40 years uh, about climate change, uh, an, uh, an all-out climate denier to run the EPA, uh, and a, a questionnaire sent by the Trump transition team around to all staff of the Department of Energy trying to identify anyone who's you know ever been to any meeting related to acknowledging the existence of, of climate change uh, yeah, I just heard that today. some sort of witch hunt uh, you know it, it looks like how, how does I mean how is this sort of stuff and and similar on the issue of war and empire how you know how are things going to change for anti-war activism and other activism uh, in the coming months well i think we have to learn some lessons i think from what we i mean you know i'm young to this i've got as i mentioned earlier i got involved when i was about 22 it's about 10 years ago now I've tried to learn from people who have been great mentors and I've tried to take my personal experiences and then read about former social movements and what's happening now and traveling around the world and working with movements abroad too and seeing some of these similarities. And I, 
I have to say that I think we have to learn some great lessons from the Bush era. This would be something I would be interviewed or I would be interested in interviewing you and others about. I almost I would like to say that I think there needs to be like a, maybe a volume or two volumes of books uh, that need to be probably published about the kinds of lessons that were learned under the Bush era when there was, I think, uh, a pretty vibrant anti-war movement. And people forget. I mean, we had an Iraq Veterans Against the War office in Chesterton, Indiana, a town of 14,000 people. So to give people an idea, and I think obviously you would understand this as much, if not more than anyone else, the kind of funding, the kind of support from allies, uh, the kind of involvement that it takes to sustain an office. And we had an office in a town of 14,000 people for two years, specifically just to do anti-war work. We had city councils locally, places like Gary, Indiana, uh, South Bend, that passed uh, resolutions against the war in Iraq. And we can go on and on. I mean, we were talking to local high schools and middle schools and so on. There was a lot of good work. Um, but, I, you know, as you know and I know, it was great heartbreak. And when 2008 happened, when Obama took office, uh, when many of the people I know who had been involved sort of went home, yeah. it, it broke my heart. And, and so... I think we have to learn from that. You know, how much education did we really do for people? You know, how how can we build better organizations? How can we have a bigger vision? You know, other than I, I think looking back, a lot of it was just anti-Bush, anti-sort of Cheney, like these individuals or these people as symbols. Um, I, I worry that we see the same thing with Trump. I don't want this to become an anti-Trump uh, movement. I think we need a movement to oppose U.S. empire. And we need to, I think, be able to express to people and to tell people, as many people are going to now find out, after not criticizing Obama for seven or eight years, well, guess what? Now all of the powers and all of the things that people who had been critical of Obama warned of that gaining, especially power within the executive branch, now all of those powers are going to be bestowed to Trump's administration. You know, those are lessons we can learn. I think the left became more critical of Obama, and progressives and even some liberals became more critical of Obama as time went on. I think that was an, another reason why Hillary Clinton couldn't get the kind of support she got. You know, I think people are kind of tired, and I can tell you this from being in a rough belt area, uh, that, you know, people are kind of tired of the identity politics. They want to hear a vision, a platform that stands for something. And as much as I was very critical of Bernie Sanders because of his foreign policy record, and because of his... Uh, so-called foreign policy vision, although uh, I think we'd both agree it was better than Clinton's and Trump's, but nowhere near adequate and nowhere near uh, where I would like to see a candidate's foreign policy position. What, what interested me with Sanders' campaign was much less him or even his opportunities for winning, but the kind of people it brought out in my hometown and in these areas that I never see people around, David. I mean, these are people, some people I hadn't seen since the Bush era. And then people I had never met. I mean, we've been doing work in this area for a decade. So in that way, it was clear to me that if we had an anti-war platform added to a socially social democratic platform, if you want to call it a socialist platform, I think a lot of people in my area would still go for it. Um, yeah. If we could add a foreign policy dynamic to that, and if we could give a clear vision, not just, hey, we're against this war or that war, because as you know, People are against the Iraq war, but for all kinds of different reasons. But if we could give a clear, principled position that we are against U.S. empire, and here's why, and here's the alternative, 
I think we can start to build the kind of organizations and institutions we need. And I think that also, to end this long-winded answer, I also think that needs to be outside of the NGO uh, structure. A lot of the most interesting activism that I see right now are people who are creating independent organizations. And I think that's important for us to do that. Well, I think that fits with what we're trying to do at worldbeyondwar.org and, and what other organizations are trying to do. I, I just, I wonder how we can get masses of people enthusiastically behind uh, a policy platform in the absence of a of a big party presidential candidate talking about it. Um, and, and I also wonder whether people now, when Trump takes over the power to murder people with drones and, and the power to spy and imprison and torture and so forth, uh, whether people are going to now get upset about what they've sat still for President Obama doing for eight years, uh, or whether having accepted it in the back of their minds for eight years and avoided thinking about it, uh, they're now going to tolerate it as normal and not get outraged the way they might have five or six years ago had it been a Republican doing it? Well, the first question in terms of uh, organizing people outside of the, I mean, a lot of uh, outside of a presidential campaign and so on, I totally agree with you. I think what's been difficult for a lot of us to have bounced back and forth from going into communities and now I think thinking about community organizing in a different way. You know, one of my great friends, I just interviewed him two weeks ago, is a gentleman by the name of Roberto Jesus Clack, who works in the Pilsen neighborhood the south side of Chicago, southwest side of Chicago, uh, doing a lot of the kind of work that I think a lot of people should be doing, this door-to-door activism, getting together with community businesses, getting together with community leaders and so on, and really get, getting to know your neighborhood and your community in a much deeper way than I've seen a lot of movements operate. And for them, you know, I, we always have this discussion, so they're working on different issues that people can identify immediately, privatization, uh, charter schools and so on. But at the same time, it's been hard to incorporate a deeper message. And even if the message does resonate, so if you can incorporate uh, education about imperialism, U.S. empire, and let's say the, the organization and the community level here in the south side of Chicago agrees with those positions or with that sort of uh, worldview, then taking it to the next step for policy, I think this is where the major question is for us. Uh, for people who are interested in either rebuilding, building a new anti-war movement, is how do you how do we get people who aren't primarily interested in those things, maybe engaged with other movements, which I've which you know this is I think the pro- the period that we've been in, and I see the same thing. You're going back to Australia here in the spring, and I saw the same thing last year, where there just wasn't really much interest in the anti-war movement. Uh, other movements are thriving though, you know. So down there in Australia. Environmental movement, thriving, uh, great things happening, building membership, numbers getting bigger, people becoming more sophisticated in their actions, becoming more radical in their actions, great stuff. I would also argue same thing here in the United States. The Standing Rock event, for me, does provide maybe a launching pad for connecting those issues, and I think that conduit will be the veterans community. How that's done I think then remains the question, you know, what kind of organizations do we want to build? I'm not sure if the existing organizations uh, in the way that they're modeled and so on and their tradition are the way to go or maybe new organizations. You know, I'm always trying to encourage people to be as creative as possible. So 
if something's not working after years and years and years of doing it, then obviously, I mean, to me, it means that we have to try some new things. It doesn't mean that we're not going to retain some basic principles uh, or some fundamental lessons that have to be learned or have been learned. Yeah. But to just try new ways of doing things. And, you know, one of the things I saw in the anti-war movement throughout the years was sort of a lack of that real rooted grassroots politics. There was a lot of conventions, a lot of conferences. I was flying around and driving around all 50 states, going to events and so on. And often I would feel this sort of void when I would come home. Because even though we had an office and even though we were doing good work, you know, I couldn't really go to my neighbors and talk about these issues. Not like I can go to them now and talk about the domestic issues that are, I think, on the table for a lot of people. And, I, you know, I, I, part of this, I think, has to be intentional. How do we intentionally educate people who have been turned on uh, by Stein, by Sanders, by others? Uh, and then how do we expand that vision, which for the Sanders campaign was primarily a domestic vision, um, to incorporate the kinds of things that someone like you has been, have been working on uh, for many years. I mean, this, yeah. I, I, you know, that to me, Standing Rock, the veterans, uh, Native communities, the environmental movement, I see that as being uh, the avenue. I don't think it's through, obviously, through unions or traditional organized labor or the traditional liberal groups. Sometimes, uh, Vince, I, I wear my shirts that say things like, I'm already against the next war, and war, what is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing, and so forth. And I find that the people, and random people, all walks of life, uh, who are open to the idea will start conversations with me. You know, <laughs> and where can I get one of those shirts? Um, so I, I try to wear the message as much as possible, but it is uh, it is endless hard work. We've got just one minute well, left. Even Trump's, uh, even Trump's I, I don't mean the, even Trump's uh, messaging. So part of it is completely reactionary and ideologically opposed and, mm-hmm. and to our values and so on. But there's a part of it as well, if you remember in the primaries, constantly talking about how the war in Iraq was a mistake, how the war in Afghanistan yeah. is a disaster. There is a sentiment, even among his supporters, those who aren't rabid racists and xenophobes, that I think can be organized. And I think some of what Nader's talked about with Ron Paul, I think, applies here. There's a libertarian strain that I think we can tap into. And I think there's a new strain of people who support Stein and Sanders and even critical supporters of Clinton who we can tap into and even some of Trump's people. I think the sentiment is there. For me, it's a matter of organizing and us finding people who hold similar values to put the time and effort into actually doing the hard work of day-to-day organizing. I think that's exactly right and a message a lot of capital D Democrats need to hear right now. Uh, Vincent Emmanuel, thank you very much for everything you're doing and for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for everything you do, man. It's now my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio Robert Alvarez. He is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., and an adjunct professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced Strategic International Studies. He's considered one of the nation's preeminent experts on civilian and military nuclear programs. Between 93 and 1999, Alvarez served as senior policy advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Energy. And between 1988 and 93, he served on the majority staff of the U.S. Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs, which was chaired by Senator John Glenn. Robert Alvarez, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. 
Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, two topics, if we can fit them in. Uh, one is this questionnaire that was sent to the Department of Energy by apparently the Trump transition team. Uh, who sent it? What was its purpose? And, and was it successfully resisted and blocked? And is that a model for uh, resistance in, uh, in the permanent government in Washington? Well, I, I mean, I've experienced two or three transitions uh, when I was working in government, and uh, this is this kind of stuff is not surprising. But I mean, in terms of process itself, because transition teams are there to figure out what's going on with an agency, and especially if a change in party, they want to know well who are the people that are political appointees and who are you know. But what makes this qualitatively different was their their questionnaire, 74 questions that they posed, which uh, which some of which were just quite simply out of hand and invasive, you know, especially asking for the identity, locations, etc., backgrounds of those people who are uh, involved in climate change policy. And to credit the department, the Obama administration, uh, they refused to. Uh, Supply the names, and even the you know the Trump transition team has backed away from this uh, questionnaire now because of the uh, you know sort of blowback they got, explaining that they hadn't authorized the memo and the employee had been counseled who sent it. But I think what's also interesting is that or the other questions that they asked, and you know I can sort of go through some of the things that they that I kind of surmise that they're looking to do here. Uh, they want to identify federal and contractor employees invited in climate change activities that they probably want to, you know, marginalize or get, get rid of. And, you know, to the credit of the Obama administration, they won't provide these names. What I read into what they're trying to do is they want to freeze all new federal hires, set the stage for layoffs. They want to curtail the department's renewable energy conservation programs. They want to figure out the department's sort of contracting maze, which uh, no one has been able to figure out. They want to reduce cleanup spending at uh, the contaminated nuclear weapons sites, which now runs at around $6 billion per year and has a total estimated liability of about $400 billion. This is the largest, most expensive complex uh, environmental cleanup program. They'd like to try to figure out a way to restart the the process of, of uh, opening the Yucca, Yucca Mountain nuclear waste disposal site for spent power reactor fuel. Yeah. Uh, they definitely want to spend more money on nuclear research and development for small modular reactors. I mean, this agency, however, if you sort of step back and look at it from, in terms of uh, where the money is going already, Nuclear research and development is consuming about 40% of all our energy R&D money as it is, about $2 billion a year. So I'm not sure that throwing more money at nuclear is going to you know, make a big of a difference. They also want to figure out a way to stem the accelerating closure of aging uneconomical nuclear power plants, which uh, I don't think you can throw money at that problem. I mean, this is a problem that will involve just blatant congressional bailouts and saddling ratepayers with additional costs that would uh, offset the costs that these guys have to make up in terms of competing with natural gas. Yeah, uh, they definitely want to muzzle the Energy Information Administration and eliminate any analysis regarding carbon emissions. And they're questioning whether the Energy Department's national laboratories. There are about 17 of these laboratories where they've engaged in research that ushered in commercial achievements. 
So, so how does this, this agenda fit with throwing out the name of Rick Perry, the guy who, though he couldn't remember it, wanted to abolish the Department well, of I Energy? Think it's not just Rick Perry. It's the Trump team altogether. And the lack of basic, uh, the lack of uh, understanding of the basic and fundamental elements of the department itself. Getting rid of the Energy Department, which was one of Rick Perry's uh, campaign promises, although he couldn't remember the name of the agency when he was running or president at that time, has been to political conservatives what the great white whale was to Captain Ahab in Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick. This, this particular cry to get rid of the department has been around for almost 40 years. I mean, I recall Ronald Reagan in 1980 when he was running for president, vowing to get rid of this agency on a list of short things he was going to do as soon as he got in the office. And very soon after his election, he met this great white whale and realizing the department's primary function was to make and maintain a nuclear arsenal, <laughs> he decided to steer his ship away from it. Yeah, this um, is a little bit strange that, uh, you know, a, a, an administration, like every other U.S. administration, that wants yet more militarism, you know, wants to demolish uh, an agency that is, like so many others, primarily military. I, I mean, I well, think... Well, I don't think they grasp the extent and degree to which this agency is dominated by military nuclear spending. I mean, if you look at the, the nuclear, basically the nuclear infrastructure, and there are other parts of the department infrastructure that are very important, but if you look at the entire department infrastructure, it has a land base greater than the states of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. And the Energy Department is responsible for the largest government-owned research and industrial complex in the United States. And in several, several western and southern states, this sprawling complex is a dominant economic force that could make or break statewide elections. Now, under the Obama administration, the department has also become an important player in energy policy, especially in terms of its loan programs and, uh, uh, and its effort to promote uh, efficient uh, automobiles and, and uh, uh, better ways to generate electricity. But I don't think the, the Trump transition team, probably not uh, former Governor Perry, have a clue of how the department fits together. And that memo pretty much reflects that lack of understanding. You know, they've ignored the fact that nearly two-thirds of the budget goes for military nuclear spending. And uh, and that this budget area has been experiencing out of control cost escalation, and, and, and you know, and what I read into their questions is that they they probably are, they they are adopting pretty much what I the Heritage Foundation's uh, agenda of supporting fossil fuels, cutting back on the workforce, stamping out climate change research development, trying to stave off collapse of the nuclear power industry, and cutting funds for environmental cleanup. That is, yeah, that that indicates to me how little they know about the department. Uh, these are pieces that they don't like or they want to change. They don't mention such rather important matters, such as disposition of huge stockpiles of nuclear weapons materials that uh, are that have we have to deal with in radioactive waste. Uh, the power marketing administrations, Bonneville Power, for example, is under the rubric of the Energy Department, which manages. Uh, electrical generation projects uh, providing electricity to wide swaths of the western United States. There's the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program, which manages the country's Navy reactors, 
and the National Nuclear Security Administration's nonproliferation efforts. So it sort of reflects this uh, level of uh, just uh, narrow, a narrow view of, of tunnel vision of what this agency is all about without without doing their homework. You know, all this information that I'm relaying to you, by the way, is all publicly available on the Internet. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't some sort of secret that uh, only the agency bureaucrats can reveal to the transition team. It's, it's not an a... example of how, how political ideology and laziness has come to play in a very heavy-handed way without regard for what it really means to run an agency or what this agency is all about. It, it does seem like one of the results of having nuclear weapons be under the so-called energy department uh, is that people don't know they're there and give the price tag of U.S. militarism as much smaller than it is by just looking at the Department of War, the department that was you know, renamed and misnamed the Department of Defense. Well, I think well, the history of this People don't recognize what the history is of the Department what, what of Energy. What is it? I was created. Well, the reason the Department of Energy was created out of the abolition of the Atomic Energy Commission, which was responsible for the design, development, testing of the nuclear arsenal, and it's always been that way. So, when the Energy Department was created, non-nuclear activities were sort of grafted onto this very large infrastructure. And nuclear weapons has always been a dominant feature of the uh, Energy Department since its creation in the, you know, the late 1970s. Uh, it's just that uh, when most most people that you know, I, most people, especially people that aren't you know aren't, aren't attuned to paying attention to government uh, functions. Uh, when they think about Department of Energy, they think about, you know, electricity, uh, natural gas, oil, nuclear, whatever. What they don't realize is that when, you know, you get a lot of people, especially I've seen this happen in some cases, when uh, energy secretaries take over who don't quite understand what this agency is about, so one of the first things that happens once they're sworn in is that they, get, they bring out what I call the budgetary handcuffs. Uh, you know, there's there's this roughly two thirds of the budget goes for bombs, nuclear weapons, and this large infrastructure uh, that's necessary to 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 maintain this arsenal. It's about seven thousand weapons, which is uh, of now, course not necessary. From the, from the public, you know, I don't know the argument of this being you know, sort of another hidden cost of militarism. Well, that that has a grain of truth to it, but it's not. This fact is not lost on the U.S. Congress. Uh, you know that uh, the way they've structured the way spending is. I mean, because uh, no, no, uh, I meant the U.S. The public, public, not the U.S. Congress. There's yeah, a difference. Well, public doesn't know, but also a lot of elected officials uh, and people we, who are you know have been we, we, to maim the. We, we've got less than a minute. Less than a minute left, Robert. Is Congress going to go along with uh, Rick Perry's nomination and with this agenda? I don't. I don't see any. Uh, I don't see any any opposition mounting to his uh, uh, his nomination. Uh, uh, the uh, I think that uh, that they'll go along with this, uh, uh, and so. Uh, because it sort of fits into the larger scheme of the Trump uh, agenda on energy. In many respects,
respect, the Energy Department is not that big of a player in energy policy. It, it, it really, uh, its major function is to maintain its large infrastructure of energy R&D, which is mostly dominated by things nuclear. So, um, you know, the real players in energy policy, in my opinion, are the EPA uh, and the Interior Department, which uh, presides over a large portion. I, of I'm afraid we will have to leave it there, and I, I wish they, they meant it more when they say abolishing <laughs> that infrastructure. Robert Alvarez uh, from the Institute for Policy Studies, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.